I want to uh, explore this morning the uh, power of this uh, time of year as a time of renewal and a time of um, coming to see more clearly, coming to uh, have clarity about what comes next. It's a very uh, special time. It's been a special time for me probably most of the last uh, most of the last 35 years, at this time of year, I've been uh, in some way on retreat or stepping back from the uh, ordinary activities. And of course, across many cultures, particularly aligned with the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere, it is a time for moving away from the busy and the habitual and looking within, seeing what one's life is about. Again, in so many cultures, it's a, uh, a tradition of some kind to, uh, to stop and to look and to, in some way, be restored, be restored to our own life trajectory. I've been reflecting a lot the last few days uh, about the preciousness of each life. You know, there's some way that e there's a way that each of us is actually quite unique, and has this um, uh, bunch of gifts that we are giving and will give to those around us, and that perspective of preciousness of ourselves really even of each day, of each moment, is a very beautiful perspective that sometimes can come back to us when we stop some, when we cease from the busy round, and when we let go of some of that busyness. And I've been, I've been looking as to how, how can I see my own life as precious. We all get in moods at times where we don't see ourselves as precious, right? We see ourselves sometimes as problematic, as beset, if not with problems, then at least a long to-do list. <laughs> right? And I am a, a to-do list factory. <laughs> And so coming back to that simple sense of preciousness and having that in one's vision, how can I see everyone as precious, even the person I have difficulties with has precious gifts for the world? Can we imagine that? You know, there's, a, there's a nice set of lines from Winnie the Pooh, which expresses this quality. Uh, Pooh and Piglet are walking down the road and Pooh asks, what day is it? Piglet says, or rather squeaks, it's today. <laughs> My favorite day, said Pooh. <laughs> and there's a, a beautiful poem, which to me ha uh, always has brought out this quality of the, the preciousness of our own lives and the, the specialness and how to come to that perspective. Uh, it's a, a poem by Mary Oliver called When Death Comes, which probably some of you know. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, and when death comes like the measles pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower. 
as common as a field daisy and as singular. Each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does to silence. In each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited the world. So we, if we can, we find a way to stop the busyness and take some time to look carefully. I hope that that's on your schedule for the next few days, that you have some downtime and that there's time to not be quite so busy, to let things be there. Sometimes that's not so easy. Sometimes we stop. <coughs> And we're there for our lives. And sometimes what arrives are messages about something to look at or something not being okay. It's maybe one of the reasons we don't stop so much because we don't want to, we don't want to look at the whole mix. Sometimes that mix will have unpleasant things to look at, which I think in the long term are fruitful to look at. There might be some reminder, oh, what about this? Or that's left unattended to, or um, what about this part of your life? That message may come and it can be unpleasant at times. Um, those, those kinds of reminders. But there's something about this process of withdrawing for a period of time and then returning the British historian Toynbee said that the cycle of withdrawal and return is the basis for the fruitfulness of culture and for the creativity. That cycle of withdrawal and return is the basis we, for many aspects of creativity for individuals or for cultures. But we need to somehow stop and slow down. Stop the momentum of our conditioning Look at where we're at. So we can ask, where am I stuck? Where do I need to uh, open up more? Where do I need to let go of something that's there? There's this um, beautiful passage from uh, Dante from many, many centuries ago. The the Divine Comedy, which I read in college, and so I have a copy of, or at least I read part of it. Uh, and uh, there's a line which is really where actually where the whole text begins, which is that Dante engages in waking up to his life, but it's actually already in process. You know, he wakes up midway through his life. And he said, I wake up midway in my life and I wake up in a dark thicket. <laughs> so it's not as if everything's just okay. Some, there are parts that we need to attend to. This is, again, this is from what, uh, 700 years ago. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. Ah, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage and harsh and dense, the thought of which renews my fear. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. I cannot rightly tell how I entered there. So he's in this dark forest. This is a metaphor for being stuck in his life in some way, in the middle of his life. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I left the true way, but when I had reached the foot of a hill at the end of that valley, which had pierced my heart with fear, I looked up and saw its shoulders already clothed with the beams of the planet that leads men straight on every road. 
that time was the beginning of the morning. So in actually looking at the difficulties, there was some renewal already present, starting to happen. So we look at those difficulties and we can ask, what do I need to let go of? Where am I stuck? What needs to be uh, shifted some? And we can ask this at the level of the individual or the family or community and the culture as well, the society. Where is our society stuck? We won't go into detail. We would need a while. <laughs> but where is it stuck? Where might it shift? How do we, how do we work with that? How do we look into where we have habits that maybe we can let go of, where we can drop? Where, we, where do we have that sense of uh, what the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi called beginner's mind, this very powerful quality? And there's, um, let's see. This is from the teachings of the Buddha, because in many ways, our practice of mindfulness is a way of continually coming back to the present, continually coming back to, oh, a new beginning. And so, in a way, our practice, every moment is the beginning of a new year, has that quality of freshness. So this is what the Buddha said maybe 2,600 years ago. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. So we cultivate that quality of being present, of having that stability to look at, at the present. And we look at what's there. And some of that is difficult. Some of that is difficult. Some of that is beautiful. Um, we learn how to, to be with what's difficult or unknown or mysterious. So we, we develop more of a tolerance for that. This is from the poet Rilke. I love the dark hours of my being. Maybe the times of unknown, the unknown or mystery or not being clear. I love the dark hours of my being. My mind deepens into them. There I can find, as in old letters, the days of my life already lived and held like a legend and understood. Then the knowing comes, I can open to another life that's wide and timeless. And when we open to those difficulties, it's important to have a kind heart. It's important to sometimes to have the qualities of forgiveness or some way that we can be gentle with the difficulties, very crucial. Um, from the Jewish tradition, from probably about 2,000 years ago, great are the righteous, for they transform <coughs> judgmental mind into mercy. And there's, there's a, a beautiful image that I heard from uh, colleague Ruth King for the first time, about a Japanese uh, custom and even a ritual of repairing damaged pottery. It's called uh, kintsugi, and it's actually kind of like an art form where one takes broken pottery and repairs it by a kind of lacquer that brings gold and silver. And I like, I, I love that image of actually not throwing away something that's a little bit flawed or broken, but we repair it. And we, and actually becomes, in a sense, more beautiful with the flaws. It's a little bit like, you know, the, the Persian rugs were supposed to have like one flaw, right? <laughs> Those rugs were supposed to have one flaw. And this kintsugi has many flaws. It's like, and I think it's a metaphor for really appreciating uh, our own lives. We have, we are like kintsugi, right? We have, we are like these beautiful 
um, pieces of pottery with a few flaws here and there. <laughs> and how can we see those flaws as part of uh, those flaws or what's difficult or where things haven't gone like we wanted as part of a beautiful uh, work of art. Right? Not easy, right? But have that image of Kintsugi, I think very, very crucial. So as we look into the difficulties, hold it maybe with that image, with forgiveness, to really keep that, keep that sense of things. As we can really be with uh, what's present, which includes the difficult, it can also include a sense of what might be emerging. And this, um, this ability to be with the mysterious or to be with the not yet worked out or to be with what's in transition. Is anyone's life in transition in some way? <laughs> you can raise your hand. <laughs> Mine is. And yeah, well how, how, well, how many people have some significant transition? Okay, so a lot of us do, right? How to be with that process of transition and be open with it and willing to listen for the new or the mysterious, right? It's part of, I think, what we can do at this time. We can move away from the habitual, from the busy, and open a little bit more to what's deeper, the deeper messages. How do we listen for the deeper messages? Some of them could be mysterious. A little bit later this morning, we'll do a practice which can invite uh, together some of those qualities of uh, being willing to open to what's mysterious, to the unknown. When I do uh, retreats here, uh, actually when I'm here also uh, for periods of time, I go to a bench which we set up for my father after he died. Some of you maybe remember my father. He used to come to this Wednesday gathering. And his name is Simon Rothberg. And he, we have this bench. And I've developed the practice of going and either sitting on the bench or standing near the bench and um, talking with him. And I don't necessarily have a whole belief system based on my sense of what happens, but something definitely happens. <laughs> and I talk to him. I often ask him, you know, any suggestions today? <laughs> he always has suggestions. <laughs> and I get the, this uh, guidance that is actually very helpful. And it doesn't sound like my voice, right? I mean, again, I'm not sure what's happening. But, you know, so um, I asked him earlier today for, uh, for guidance on this talk. And his guidance was, let's see if I can remember, was, um, let's see. Let me check. You never listened to me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, got it. I remember the first part. He said three things. I remembered the first. He said, be yourself. Be down to earth. Be real. Very good. And, you know, so this, this for me is like a daily practice that brings in the mysterious, right? Like I can go talk like that. And again, whether it's coming from some part of myself or some other metaphysical realm, who knows? Um, but um, there's something that is mysterious and unbidden that is not, is not simply repeating what I've been thinking about recently. And we can do that. We can have some way. We, I think it's valuable for each of us to have some way of accessing from a deeper place or a mysterious place. You know, to do that every day, to do that at times. Um, I know for myself also very important has been in transition times of really being open to the mysterious and to, uh, to the new and being willing to be with ups and downs. Um, uh, I know I had a transition time about 15 years ago where 
I felt I had been working a little bit too much, and I knew I needed to give some room to open up to something new. Because there's something about giving space. If we don't give space, what's new has little room to enter. Right? And so we can give that space in various ways. And for me, it was actually, I had been teaching a lot. And I reduced my teaching radically. For a lot of the time, and I was able to have enough income to live on. But I reduced it radically, and I had a lot of unstructured time, which was sometimes scary, right? Like, what am I doing with my time? But I needed that unstructured time for the new to come in. Without that unstructured time, there wouldn't have been room. So we need, and that this kind of goes against some of the energy of the culture, doesn't it? Just fill it up, be busy, do this, do that. Here, this is interesting. Here, okay, here are 14 places to go electronically you might be interested in. <laughs> you know? And how do, we, how do we empty ourselves out some so that we can actually uh, be with the new, be with the mysterious? How can we do that? I loved, uh, you know, someone like Gandhi a number of times did this in his life when he was unsure of what was to come next. Gandhi opened in a way to what was new. One way he did that was when he came back to India after being in South Africa for many, many years. He um, decided that he would not simply get back to work, but he traveled around India, he said, listening for one year. He said, I will shut my mouth and open my ears. And he did this for one year, just listening to people, traveling, meeting people from all over India. And there was another time which was really pivotal in the Indian independence movement when he was unsure what to do. And it was 1929, 1930. Some of you may know this history. And he was unsure what to do. And people were putting pressure on him. They were saying, you're Gandhi. You should know what to do. And he said, I don't know what to do. And he said, I know that if I wait enough, the inner voice will come and tell me what to do. And he just sat for six weeks. He sat for weeks, actually, on, the, uh, on a chair on the front porch of his house overlooking a river. And he sat there, and people were getting nervous. What should we do? You know, when there were people in the Indian independence movement who were who were counseling uh, violence and terrorism. And there was pressure to come up with a, a response. He said, I want to listen for the answer. And he waited for weeks. And finally, after six weeks, he said, now I know what to do. He said, we will march to the ocean and we will make salt. This was the origin of the famous salt march that later provoked a very brutal British response or reaction. And so much so that the legitimacy of the occupation in many people's eyes was gone. Many weeks of protest, a lot of violence. And um, he started with 250 people from his community, the nearer people, marching to the ocean to make salt, which at the time of the British occupation was illegal for anyone but the British to make salt. Or for anyone who didn't have the right uh, what permit or whatever. You could not make salt. And of course, salt at that time was necessary for the storage of food in a tropical climate. So, you know, absurd. But it was... Um, a brilliant move, it came out of that waiting, that not knowing, that silence. By the time they got to the ocean, there were 10,000 people. 10,000 people marching. So there are these times, and you can, I think you can find it in the lives of many people who did wonderful things, that there was, again, like the historian Toynbee said, these cycles of withdrawal, of waiting, 
of being willing not to know, and that's difficult sometimes, but waiting and going more deeply. Right? That's what this time calls for. You know, we might do this for a day, we might do it for a longer period of time, we might do it for, um, we might take a retreat, we might deliberately not have that kind of input. And again, we do this even if there's been difficulty. Some of what's been most inspiring for me has been people who, who have had difficult pasts, but they, they are alive to the process of transformation. And even though there's difficulty, something that's beautiful uh, and powerful opens and something truly mysterious. So this capacity to let go to some extent of a difficult past and people who've had, you know, I can think of friends who've had very difficult past, but it inspires me to, to witness their openness to change and, and not being burdened by the past. You know, something else which has always inspired me is seeing films of the old civil rights movement, you know, where you have, uh, like, especially African-American older men and women who had really uh, experienced so much. And yet the um, sense of dignity is still there and the sense of hope and something is alive even with that difficult past and something to remember you know, at certain moments for ourselves. So we can work at this time as we go into what is uh, more open and to, and to be to some extent with the mystery we can work very consciously with intention. It's a very crucial capacity to, when we touch some of those depths, to see what the intention is, to open to these deeper qualities and let an intention come out of our wisdom or our compassion or our uh, aliveness. How do, we, how do we open in that way so that we can have uh, renewing intentions I thought I'd read from one of my favorite books from a friend uh, named Ruth Gendler. She wrote a book called The Book of Qualities. It looks like this, or th this edition looks like this. And Ruth is actually a friend, and she wrote this, was very inspired to write a book which has like 50 or 60 people <coughs> described in the book, and these people are the personifications of human qualities. So. Uh, from the index. There's pleasure, worry, fear, patience, confusion, loneliness, despair, judgment, courage, anxiety, faith, doubt, forgiveness, commitment, and about 30 or 40 others. <laughs> and so I thought I'd read from wisdom and compassion because these in many ways are qualities that we want to touch and have our intentions come out of them. This is wisdom. And she personifies all these qualities as either male or female. Nowadays, we would probably have some transgender ones, but this is wisdom who is female. Wisdom wears an indigo jacket. She takes long walks in the purple hills at twilight, pausing to meditate at an old temple near the crossroads. She was sick as a young child, so she learned to be alone with herself at an early age. Wisdom has a quiet mind she likes to think about the edges where things spill into each other and become their opposites. She knows how to look at things inside and out. Sometimes her eyes go out to the things she is looking at, and sometimes the things she is looking at enters through her eyes. Questions of time, depth, and balance interest her. She is not looking for answers. And yet answers come, don't they? Right. And there's this, <clears throat> there's this way that we can work to touch these depths and then see if intentions come out of that. And intentions can come in small ways when, you know, like at the beginning of the sitting, I asked, can there be an intention uh, that reflects a deeper aspiration? Can there be intention for this specific activity? It's a beautiful daily practice to kind of touch that sense of openness and mystery. We can do this before difficult conversations with a coworker or a family member. What's my intention? And see what comes. And we can work with that in that way. 
We can work with intentions for the larger culture. We can remember some of the beautiful visions of our of community or of the, the world. I think, again, we need this kind of renewal at the level of society and culture. Some of us may remember, for example, a vision like that of the beloved community from Dr. King, you know, or some of the beautiful visions of this country which get, get lost now. You know, there was, there was a, a beautiful poem from uh, 1938 from Langston Hughes which was, uh, which invokes this sort of dream of America. I thought I'd read this because it's a way, again, this renewal needs to happen on all these different levels. Langston Hughes, African-American poet, writing in the 1930s, which was, you know, coming after a difficult time of the, you know, re-entrenchment of Jim Crow and lynchings were still going on in the 1930s in the U.S. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be that great, strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme, that any one be crushed by one above. Let my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath, but opportunity is real and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. And yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. And so this, this way that we um, open to these depths, and I think sometimes it means remembering these deeper intentions that we may have had for the country, for the community, for a family, for a relationship, for, for ourselves. And we come out of that... Uh, that opening with an intention that can guide us for a next period of time. I had all these wonderful things I was going to read to you. I'm just reading you a few. <laughs> Uh, here, 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 here it is. I think all of this is about really uh, coming back to um, the mystery of the moment, to the openness of the moment. I think when we can touch that, we go to that deeper level where our own personal sense of intention can be there and be alive. So this is a, a, a poem I'll... I'll finish this segment and then we'll move to a, a different practice. This is from John O'Donohue, Irish poet. It's called Four Presence. Awaken to the mystery of being here and enter the quiet immensity of your own presence. Have joy and peace in the temple of your senses. Receive encouragement when new frontiers beckon. Respond to the call of your gift and the courage to follow its path. Let the flame of anger free you of all falsity. May warmth of heart keep your presence aflame. May anxiety never linger about you. May your outer dignity mirror an inner dignity of soul. Take time to celebrate the quiet miracles that seek no attention. Be consoled in the secret symmetry of your soul. May you experience each day as a sacred gift woven around the heart of wonder. So let that be an entry now to a practice which we'll do individually and then as a group. And this will involve having that piece of paper nearby along with a writing implement. So first, I want to do a visualization.
So please uh, let your eyes close gently. And we'll do a visualization. And to get a little bit of practice with visualizing, kind of a warm-up, visualize, visualize how you got here. Bring the image, it may be getting into a car, maybe driving, maybe being picked up, maybe some other way of getting here. And just have that image in your own mind for a little while. And come back to being present. I want to invite you to visualize a kind of journey through time and space. Visualize yourself first moving from where we are here at Spirit Rock into the sky. You have the capacity to fly and you move up into the sky, into the clouds, and you're also moving through time. You're moving to a time that is actually three years from now. So you're in the clouds and you're moving through time. And you have the capacity to look down and see yourself in three years. You can look down and see yourself in your favorite activity. So when you're in the clouds, there's a wise being who comes to you. And this wise being may be an actual person who's alive now, maybe an elderly relative or a teacher or mentor, a close friend, or it could be someone who is no longer alive. It could be a figure like the Buddha or Kuan Yin. See who this wise being is. This wise being comes to you when both of you are in the clouds. And this wise being whispers to you some guidance for the next year. See who the wise being is and listen for that, that guidance. And this wise being also gives you a gift of an object of some kind. 
see what that object is, see what is the gift that you can take back with you. And then with this gift and with that whispered guidance, look down on yourself in three years and see what you see. Again, in your, one of your favorite activities. again in time and space and come back to the present time, moving through the clouds, and then coming down back to where we are right now in this hall at this time. And being just with our sense of presence here, And then, in the next few minutes, you can open your eyes and write on this sheet of paper, first, your intention, or a central intention, for the next year, number one. And then number two, write what you'd like to let go of, one thing you'd like to let go of. So first, an intention, core intention for the next year. Secondly, one thing you'd like to let go of. It could be two or three, that'd be okay. You can 
take this sheet of paper. How many need a little more time? Okay, take out just a little more time. I'd like to invite now is uh, we're going to do some group chanting and you can bring your intention, your sheet of paper and place it in the, the bell here and I will take responsibility for burying this in the land, on the land where it has more power. <laughs> if you'd like to make a note to yourself of what you wrote down, <laughs> So you remember it, feel free to do that <laughs> or just uh, remember it. So the uh, chant that we'll do is the chant that comes out of metta, her loving kindness. It's sabe, sata, suki, hontu. May all beings be happy. It's really pointing to that quality of preciousness in all beings. So I'll start the chanting and let's chant together. And when you're ready, you can simply come up and leave your piece of paper in the bell. Okay? Sabe sata suki hontu together. Sabe sata suki hontu. When you're ready, you can come up and leave your sheet. Come up right now. Sabe sata Suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe. Sata suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu sabe sata suki hantu sabe sata Last entries <laughs> into the bell. So may these intentions and may these letting, lettings go by virtue of being offered in this setting be given more power and may these qualities of intention and may, may these ways that we let go of that which does not serve, does not serve any longer, may these be of benefit to ourselves, to those close to us in our lives, and to the entire world, which really thrives when we are most fully being ourselves.
maybe I'll close with this wonderful story that I heard from uh, Howard Thurman, who was an African-American activist, theologian, mystic, whose uh, writings are worth reading. He came to the Bay Area, I think in the 50s, and he uh, set up what I heard was the first really truly interracial church in the Bay Area, where uh, quite, quite central. He was active, he was writing still at that time, a lot of projects. Someone came to him in the last decade of his life, he died about 1980, and asked him, as a young person, what should I do? I don't know what to do. And you might have thought that he would say, well, you know, we have, um, you know, quite a lot of projects connected with the church. We could really use your energy here or really there. Or think about this project or think about that project. He said, rather, <clears throat> this was a lifelong activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Interesting suggestion, right? Don't ask what the world needs. Rather, Ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who, has come, who have come alive. So I think that's why we gather here. And may, may this uh, gathering today be of a benefit, again, to all of us, to all in our circles, and then to the larger world, ultimately to all beings. May it be, may it be of benefit, may it be of service, May it help us and all beings to come more alive with all the good stuff of wisdom, compassion, smiles, and skillful action and courage. So thank you very kindly and see you uh, next year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.